All right, you're here for the sequel. The Trouble Feature Podcast Part 2, the second installment. Aaron Weeks and Siobhan Walsh here. We're going to discuss our favorite thing, which is movie. And you're here to listen to our discussion about movie, and I'm happy you're here. So on this double feature, again, on the last episode, if you had a chance to listen to, we did American Psycho, Promising Young Woman. Kind of the crux of this show is um, Sean and I, we watch two movies and then we want to talk about them. We want to take those threads. We want to put those red strings on bulletin boards, connect the dots, talk about why these two movies are interesting. How do they speak to each other? What makes them the same? What makes them different? To us, that's fun. And we hope it's fun for you too. So on this episode, we're going to talk about um, two black and white features that we watched recently, which is Roma and Francis Ha. So to get us started, I'm going to pass it to you, Siobhan. If you want to kind of maybe set up these movies, maybe talk about Roma, Francis Ha, who directed them, what's the facts, give us those details. I can also fill in the gaps as well. So give it to us. Yes. Okay. So um, we watched Roma, which is, um, I guess first we watched Francis Ha. Um, Francis Ha is a movie that came out in... Hold on. I should have been prepared for that. Okay, yeah, okay. It's a 2012 movie. It was written by both Greta Gerwig and um, Noah Bumbach, and it was directed by Noah Bumbach. Um, And it is just a story told in black and white about a woman who lives in New York. Um, She's in her mid-20s. It's like the ultimate 20, you know, mid-20s movie to watch where she is literally just going throughout her life. She's like a ballet dancer. Um, and she's recently had like a small falling out with her best friend. And it's just kind of like a slice of life, uh, for, it's like a picture of this moment in Francis has life or Francis's life. Um, and then Roma we watched, which was, um, 2018 directed by Alfonso. Is it Caron? Caron. Well, yeah, and it's kind of also told in black and white. It just tells the you know story of, I guess, a middle class family in Mexico City in the seventies, and um, but really through the lens of or told through the perspective of the is she like a nanny or? Yeah, I would say a nanny. Live yeah, a nanny or yeah, like live a nanny for for the family. So yeah. No, it, it, that's great. Thank you for doing that for the listeners. What we also want to say, and I know that you know this is a movie podcast, but there will be spoilers. So throwing that out there. Also, <laughs> if you listen to movie podcasts and you don't anticipate spoilers, what are you doing? I don't know. I know. So Whatever. <laughs> I think some of the obvious threads I'm going to talk about first is like, one, these are both black and white films, which is why we did this run of movies. But what I want to really pick apart with that is kind of like, how does that set the mood for you? Um, I think with Roma, to me, the black and white mood of it all makes it feel authentic. Like, again, in this movie, you're really getting Cleo's story and Cleo's world and everything around her. And I think really the black and white really lends to that. Um, Francis Ha, I think more so to me, gives this kind of feeling like um, I get for watching like Manhattan um, by Woody Allen. It's, again, it's just like this antiquated New York City. 
And like, that's the mood of it all. And you're really getting this like photo book of the greatest city in the world. Anything else you want to pick apart with um, just black and white films in general, kind of maybe what black and white does for the viewer. Um, I'll just give you kind of the, the space there. No, that's so true. There is a sense of authenticity, I feel like, where it feels like you're watching a movie, you know, it feels like something about this is important. Um, and it, I think when like the use of color obviously is its own medium when making film, but having it in black and white really makes you focus on the story itself, which is interesting. But yeah, I don't know. I think what's, what I love about both of these movies is that they're in black and white, but it's not to create some type of fake grain, like um, vintage feel to it. Um, because they're very much still like they're both shot in digital. So it's very much a modern black and white movie. Um, and I think that, I think Alfonso Cuaron said when he was, or just in an interview asked about why he chose black and white, um, because he was trying to evoke a sense of nostalgia. Um, cause essentially the, the movie is based on his own memories and his own life. So and I guess that's what he was trying to do. Whereas I think Francis Ha, it's also black and white, but it's not nostalgic per se. It's more romanticized. Does that make sense? I, I don't know. I love the choice in both situations. So I, I think black and white could be, if it's not used correctly, it's overdone and it, it really misses the mark. Right. I think with both these films, this is where um, film school dropout and, Siobhan's film corner we're kind of overstepping here but you know I think where Roma really fits in with like Italian neorealism of yeah. like you're setting the camera up and the world is happening around you where um um Francis High is essentially more the French new wave yes and, French, that's what I was gonna say <laughs> and um listeners go look those up okay. we're, we're not professors we're not teachers but that's kind of what I got out of that we know movies we know movie and we're gonna talk about them <laughs> Okay, the, the next obvious point, which but I think is really important because I do want to deconstruct a little bit, is um, these are women-led stories directed by men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, as a man myself, find that interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but what I wrote down is like, is this interesting, but are we interested? Like, did they do their due diligence? I think these are movies that I kind of know both you and I love, but again, men directing these very like powerful women-led stories. Do you have any thoughts on that, Siobhan? Yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting because I, yeah, I do love these movies so much. I saw Francis Hoff first and watching it, it's like obviously very relatable. And like the value of the movie does not lay in how relatable I as a person like find it. But I also think that if Greta Gerwig didn't have writing credits on this, it might have been a different story. However, in Roma, I know Alfonso Cuaron wrote, directed, produced, like did all of this by himself. And it, he's basically telling the, his memories, but his memories through like the maid that he had growing up, which is, I don't know, that's how, do, I don't know how you do that. I would like to see, like, I didn't actually look up at all who, like, what the real life Cleo um, thought about the movie. Mm-hmm. Or if she even saw it, you know, I have no idea actually, but, but it is really interesting. I don't know. I think what happens with Frances Ha is, has Greta Gerwig's hands all over it. And I, I think that's what 
answers this question is again there, there was that experience there the actual experience within each shot and each scene mm-hmm. um i think what works with roma again is like you're right it's really Caron just with these memories and all he's doing is setting the camera up and letting yeah. the action unfold and i think that's why it works rather there, there's not a lot of scenes and monologues of cleo saying this is what i think as a woman in this plot and story yeah. which i think can really miss sometimes when um you just don't have that real life experience or understanding of like where you fit in the world. Yeah. And it's interesting because like, we don't really get any dialogue from Cleo until the very, well, not any dialogue, but any like, um, dialogue about how she feels about the things going on around her and to her until the literal very end of the movie where she all of a sudden has this outburst of like, I never wanted my kid. Like that was crazy, but you don't, you just see the thing, these things happening to her and you see them f- quite literally from her perspective, like as close to her eyes as you can. Um, but also like from a step back, I'm not sure. I think he does a really good job of capturing a memory within like a frame. But but yeah, you don't really get that. Whereas in Francis Ha, it's all Francis just chatting it up about how she feels about different things. And there's a lot of dialogue there. That is a funny parallel that, as you were talking, um, was really resonating with me is, again, Cleo, a very, very introspective character. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't hear her in her dialogue. Um, You don't really hear her even express to the outer world what she thinks until that scene you mentioned. Yeah. Um, Francis, Francis character is talking the whole time. (laughs) It's almost it's the spaces in between where she's not talking, where you learn the most about the character. Yeah. I think that's kind of um, just a really interesting parallel between the two. Mm hmm. I think another point to just stick with this kind of gender lens is um, what I wrote down is like, these are really two stories about what it is to be a young woman in an ever changing world facing Mm -hmm. major milestones where society has these expectations of those milestones. Mm -hmm. I think these movies really tackle that in totally different ways and totally different milestones of again, um, pregnancy. And then also just where your place in the world is as, as an older young woman, you know? So just any thoughts on that or anywhere you want to take that? I don't know. I, um, I agree. They're, they're literally just kind of slices of life, I guess, but their, their circumstances are so different. Like, um, the trials that Cleo goes through are so much more monumental apparent, like how she deals with them is where you like see her story. Um, just like, not that, I'm not sure. I think that um, Francis's problems all like are created by herself, you know, and she has like all these abilities and opportunities, but she has to like figure out really what to do with them. And is an interesting like lens to like see a story in. I don't know. But but then <laughs> seeing the completely different uh, just circumstances that Cleo's put in how I don't know how old she's supposed to be in the movie, but um, how she deals with them is interesting. I, I enjoy both of them, obviously. You know, something that dawned on me as we're talking to is um, with, with this idea in mind, it's just like these slice of life films where you're a young woman in the world. Each protagonist has a foil. And within Roma, the foil is um, essentially the woman that Cleo's working for mm-hmm. and kind of. You know, she's upper middle class. Um, she looks like 
she has everything together and then her marriage is unfolding. Right. Yeah, and right. Kind of oh how the world views her versus Cleo and how she interacts with Cleo, vice versa. And then within Francis Ha, right, it's um Francis and And her best friend. Yeah, her best friend. And like who they're both the same age, they've kind of been doing the same things, but right now they're taking a divergent path yeah. within the movie. And, and again, uh, how Frances views her throughout the movie is really indication of how she views herself and that she's not reaching these same milestones. So there's just something about these milestones. It's like everyone has an expectation of them, yeah. but the characters are authentically living them. And that's yeah. like what we get to um, experience with them together. Yeah, it's, I, I do, because they're, that's the other thing too that's highlighted in both of these movies is, or just these stories, like female relationships. Um, and I think that in Francis Ha specifically, if Noah Bumbach would have written that, the script by himself, there wouldn't have been any type of like situation with her best friend. And it's interesting that they focus on these relationships that they have with like employer, but like woman and friend. And also uh, just like, like you said, like best friend that you're having like a little bit of a, like a, you're going on a different path from them. Um, I forgot where I was going with this, but. Yeah, no, no worries. I think we, we can move on maybe to that next point. Maybe that thought will come back up to you is another parallel between the two, putting those strings together is like really this idea of classism yeah, and how each character lives in that world of classes. And, um, Again, Cleo's is kind of obvious because, you know, she is working for an upper middle class family um, and she's kind of a lower socioeconomic status and, and all that is and, um, in a much different way than what I mean in America, lower socioeconomic status. Yeah. And France is, you know, in a way too, it's kind of less obvious, but um, when she's with um, Lev and, and those characters, right? And she's really understanding, like, they live a totally different world of affluence and the yeah. bourgeoisie. <laughs> And all that. And again, being a young woman living in, in this world, you know, what does that mean? And kind of both movies take it different ways. Just any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I find it so interesting. And Frances how or just there's that one scene where she's like, I'm literally poor. And she has to like remind her roommates, like, quote unquote, that she's well, she's crashing on their couch and she's paying rent. And she has to remind them, like, I'm paying. I Is it still OK if I pay less rent than you? And I think um, what is it? I don't know if it's Liv that says it to her, but he's like, you're not poor. People are actually poor and you're not like there are people in New York who are poor and you're not one of them. But it is still like she's, you know, the brokest of her friends and somehow is a dancer in New York full time and can afford to still live in like a Brooklyn apartment, you know. Um, whereas like in Roma, it's like the classes there are the classes separation class separation is a parent literally from the beginning and they like make that very obvious just when the places that Cleo goes and like spends her free time um compared to how the family that she's working for spends their free time you know what it reminds me of and this could be a tangent so you're welcome listeners is there's this great new yorker cartoon with three goldfish and within this cartoon there's a small goldfish that says the world is unjust and right behind that small goldfish is a medium goldfish that's eating him and says, well, the world is unjust sometimes. And behind that medium goldfish is a large goldfish eating that goldfish saying, the world is just. <laughs> I think that's kind of what you're really describing as like a worldview here is, depending on where you're at in this class of society, it's like 
you may see the wrongdoing or maybe you see I'm doing it right. right. And I think with like Adam Driver and those characters, mm-hmm. they're the ones who are like, the world is just, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the one like, what do you think? There's people more important than you. Where I think Cleo experiences the exact same thing. And I think where again, her being um, acclimated to this family of a middle class and how they kind of view her actions and whatnot. It's very similar, right? But there's yeah. some really unjust things happening to Cleo's oh my character. God. Yeah. She just gets dealt the worst hand and the family helps her. Like it's obvious that they love and care about her, but there's still such a separation. You know, she's still just there as like a fixture to their lives, despite these like crazy, insane things affecting her. It's interesting. So probably the last point I have before we move to film school corner is I wrote down and I, I did not remember this. I, I was doing some research, but Roma essentially has no score. And oh I kind of forgot about that. But I then Francis Ha leans oh heavily God. on the score. And like, <laughs> yeah. this is such an interesting parallel. That's I, when I was watching Roma, which is what is so insane about the movie when you're watching it, I had no idea there was no music playing the whole time. Like there's sound and they do so much with like the sounds of like nature and the city that going on around them. Um, you really just like don't notice, but like Francis saw literally <laughs> that like little song. Like, I think it's like called Camille, um, that plays like in the beginning. It's like her little soundtrack that goes on anytime I'm just sitting alone. That's just playing in my head nonstop. So, and again, I think Francis High is, it's really related to Manhattan. If you haven't seen that movie and, um, the score in Manhattan is just such a central character as well. Um, before we move to film school corner, since I already spoke about it, I think what's interesting with the no score in Roma is again, this Italian neorealism. And if you need a reference, watch Bicycle Thieves. You'll kind of understand what it is, but it's um, at that time after World War. Let me get strong. <laughs> after World War One or Two, um, in Italy, they're filming movies still. <laughs> and amongst that authentic yeah. world is like you have buildings crumbling, you have <laughs> all these stories about again trying to live your life in this really like dilapidated, crumbling world after a catastrophe of war, and that's kind of what like. Roma reminds me of um, as well with just setting up the camera in those shots. And when we yeah. say like, there's no score when we say there's not really a lot of close-ups. Mm-hmm. again, it's cause it's just this realism of the moment and um, recording what's happening behind, behind the film. Yeah. The Which is also so crazy because I know Al- Alfonso Cuaron literally recreated actual streets like in Mexico from memory in like from what they looked like in the 70s like he Schenectady New York this like just completely recreated this setting of his life and childhood um but still is like feels very natural I don't know. Yeah, and I th- think that's a good segue to maybe film corner, film school corner. Shavon's going to teach us something here which is missing scene. I'll give her the floor and we'll kind of relate it to that point she made about Roma. Yeah. Well, that's what I think is so mise-en-scene or mise-en-scene. Not quite sure. It's French. We're not French. We're not French. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's basically like in in film at least is like placing the stage. Um, It's all has to do with or it refers to the visual composition. Anything that is shown visually and how that set up. Um, is all very purposeful towards telling the story that you want to tell. So uh, costume, set design, 
everything that you see visually um, and that is chosen distinctly to be vi or, um, visualized is mise-en-scene. Um, and I think Roma is just mise-en-scene in a movie. Like he did this all so deliberately, um, which is different from Francis Ha, but, but it is, it's a beautiful film. Yeah, I think the point I want to make about Francis Ha with Miss Song is essentially... <laughs> something like that. Yeah, something like that. Essentially, I think New York City is a great example of, like, you can just set the camera up, and within that frame, the player's in the right place. Yeah. The setting's in the right set. And there's, like, such a visual, compelling story behind that. And that's, again, you know, she's just traveling around New York City and, and yeah. getting that. But I do think that it's a great point about Roma is that there's so much intentionality in the scenes. And if we just pick mm -hmm. some shots right now, pull them up on Google, you know, we could probably have a great dialogue about each shot. Yeah. Um, not to say that Francis Ha is not on that caliber, but it, it just doesn't have the same intention. I think that's purposeful. Yeah, definitely. And I hate the whole, like, New York is a character in itself. Like, I don't know. It's, it's so overdone, it feels like. But you can tell, like, it, the just shots of the city it adds like authenticity to the story and it feels like like the brooklyn movie you know so that's because you're from new york city i'm not so i can say that yeah you don't yeah. <laughs> you don't get it not like i, I do but no but roma is it's really insane like he he did all of that so purposefully and i think that misan plays such a big role in that film because he's making a um i don't know he's using film to recreate memory basically um and you can see in each shot we're watching it through i kind of mentioned this earlier but we're watching what's going on through cleo's perspective but she's still in the frame we can see what she sees and we can see how alfonso sees what she's seeing and that's all very deliberate like there's a reason she's shown just like to the far left of the screen. Um, there's a reason the, you know, rooms are all from this very like wide angle perspective. Um, Cause the movie is quite literally like a memory, I guess. Yeah. It's a memory we all share now after watching it. And I think, What's so great about this dialogue, and I just want to point out to our listeners, is um, this is why I love movies. There's just so many layers to it, and we're only like talking about maybe five percent of it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's right. still so much more we could break down with both these movies. But um, within these connections, I hope you find some truth, something interesting, something enjoyable. Um, I'm going to kind of move on from these. The last point about Alfonso Cuarón, I do want to make is I think he single-handedly has made the best franchise IP movie of all time, which is Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So <laughs> I'm just going to say that. So if you need a director to revive your, your franchise and, and make it on an artistic caliber, you hire him. He knew what he was doing. He establishes the realist sense of time in every movie that he does. And Harry Potter is only the start. Definitely, definitely. So maybe we'll do a Harry Potter double feature at some point. So true. Well, why did I have a dream last night that I absolutely had to watch The Goblet of Fire? You can watch that one, but he didn't do that, so it's not as good. That's so um, true. That's so true. And this next segment, essentially what we're going to do is we're either going to talk about director, we're going to talk about something interesting, we're going to do a fun game. Today we're going to do Recasting Couch. So 
we want to recast another black and white film that we watched recently, which is Coffee and Cigarettes. Um, essentially, this film by Jim Jarmusch in 2003, it's all these vignettes um, of different scene partners over time. I think he filmed this, I think it was over like 10 years, if more. I think it was literally 17 years. Okay, so almost 20 years of filming these vignettes with different actors and actresses over time um, and really combining these short stories together to to make a, a full text. And yeah. It's always been one of my favorites. Just if you go on YouTube and look up the Tom Waits and Iggy Pop scene, that's one that I reference a lot to my friend group and when I talk about movies. But what we want to do today is just kind of pick some of those scenes and recast them for fun. Um, I can go first if you want, Siobhan, unless you have one that's interesting. You want no, to please. All you take the stage. I'm, I've been on the edge of my seat. I've been thinking about this a lot. Okay, so one great scene, and there's, um, I believe it's called Twins, and it has um, Spike Lee's um, brother and sister in it. Mm-hmm. It has Steve Buscemi. Okay, so I'm taking a big swing here, which okay. is I would recast them with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito, who played in the movie Twins. Oh my! I believe it's <laughs> from 1993. I believe. Let me look that up. <laughs> No, absolutely. I didn't even think about that. That would be hilarious. Uh, 1988. Sorry. Um, I think that would be great. That would be great. <laughs> It'd be funny to have the same outfits, same um, framing, same everything. And then Steve Buscemi is just untouchable. You, you can't recast him. It's say, impossible. So. I was thinking about Steve Buscemi and I was like, I don't know. There's not. I would still cast him to, today in the same thing. I mean, like it's almost 20 years and I would still have Steve Buscemi in it. Yeah, because he's perfect. He is perfect. So, is there a scene in mind that you want to recast any of the actors or actresses? <laughs> I, no, I, okay. For the twins one, um, Army Hammer and Army Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> the Winklevoss twins, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> that would be crazy, but I don't think we want to have Army Hammer in a film. If we were, yeah, we don't want to do that. So, yeah, Steve Buscemi is going to be Timothy Chalamet. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I have my notes here and I have like different people and there's just a line that says Timothy Chalamet. I don't have anyone specific, but I, that he would play, but I just know that he would be in it for sure. Um, the Kate Blanchett scene Ooh, okay, where she plays herself and her like, like broke down cousin, um, Aubrey Plaza question mark. <laughs> I think she would do a good job. You need someone with some range who can really do a bunch of yeah, roles. Yeah, that's so true. She kind of has like a one, you know, um, she kind of just has does one thing, but I feel like it would work. So, okay, I wrote down Amy Adams for that part. Amy Adams. Uh, that would be a good one. I um, What made you think Amy Adams? Uh, again, I was looking for an actress that is very well known. Yeah. But it has like such a deep range and could really play essentially themselves, but yeah. a different persona. And I, I thought she'd be great for it. Definitely. Um, did you pick anybody for um, uh, the Tom Waits Iggy Pop? Okay, I, I did not. That one is like I don't know, also sacrimonious to me. Yeah. Like, I don't know <laughs> yeah. if I can change that at all. Um, if anything, it'd be great. Just You could just do a segment of Tom Waits and anyone having coffee. And Tom Waits just being Tom Waits. And Absolutely. That's something that I would pay a lot of money to, to view. Yeah. After watching this movie, I went into like a little Tom Waits, uh, on a Tom Waits bender, if you will. Crazy. Certainly. Crazy experience. So one, okay, one obvious one that I had written down, and maybe you'll agree immediately, but there's the female fatale scene. Um, it's like very short vignette. Yeah. You know who's perfect for that. 
Were you, are you gonna say Lana Del Rey? <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say Lana Del Rey, and I didn't want to be annoying by saying Lana Del Rey because she would be perfect. There's but only one choice. I mean, come on, who else would do that? You know what though? Okay, so Lana Del Rey is perfect. As I think her name is like Renee. I googled it, Renee French. She's like only in this. Um, I was thinking like Jenna Ortega. Oh, okay. I think that's a great shout. Right, but she she would be in this at some point. Um, another good one I had was, Oh, I don't know. Um, Jeff Goldblum in Ooh. Bill Murray's spot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Let's, let's end on this one here. So Jeff Goldblum, would you choose anyone for, um, Riza and Jizza from the Wu-Tang Clan? That's what I, I don't know if I could, you know, they're, they're irreplaceable. I don't know. Right. They are kind of irreplaceable, but you know who I could see being replaced? The White Stripes? A hundred gecks. Okay. I know of them, but (laughs) that makes sense. You may have to explain to the listeners a little bit. Um, Just a little quirky, you know? Yeah, you need the quirkiness and like the weirdness (laughs) and someone who's over the top, but not like in your face over the top. Yeah, so true. That's fun. So, okay. I wanted to end on Bill Murray and Wu-Tang. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because this, this is the one I had. Is One is it, Wu-Tang is irreplaceable. I think so, <laughs> you too. Can, you cannot recast them. Yeah. However, Bill Murray, we can recently, recast. he's been canceled, right? Like, we, yeah. we're just out on Bill Murray. Not So, it's like, Bill what Murray's better out. than to get another canceled Chicago <gasps> famous person, comedian, okay. John Mulaney. Oh, my God. John Mulaney. John it's almost Mulaney a one for one. But. Sitting down, getting lectured by Wu-Tang Clan. I would, uh, Clan. I would absolutely fucking... I would love, love that. That's a good one. So, listeners, I would encourage you to check out Coffee and Cigarettes by Jim Jarmusch, 2003. It's a really fun movie. Again, it's different. It's not for everyone. There's another scene I'll shout out. is the champagne scene. It's one of the last ones. It's, it's just delightful. Yeah. And... um. That one's almost unrecastable as well. Mm-hmm. Fave of the so, pod. Fave of the pod. Fa- fave of the pod. Fave of the pod. Okay, so this last segment here, what we're going to try to do, and this may get a little quirky and off the rails here, is we want to do some table reads of scripts of the movies we're watching because we like screenwriting. We want to talk more about it and we want to experience it. So we're going to do a little segment from Francis Ha. So let's get our vocals ready. Let's get our acting skills ready. Oh my god! What do you want to do, Shvani? You just want to read it? Oh uh, yeah, let's go. This is my favorite monologue. I think this is like an intensely, intensely lonely scene, but it's like kind of makes the movie what it is. And like she kind of like has this. You find Francis has a belief at this point, and it does. It comes true. Um, but it's it's a great. It kind of makes wraps up the movie into one Definitely. little scene for sure. Um, but yeah. I'll just go for it, I guess. You had the floor. Do it. <laughs> so, um, setting the scene, Frances is at a dinner, a dinner party. Um, she, everybody has kind of like finished their dinner. They're sitting outside. They're drinking. They're having, you know, they're smoking. She's talking to basically strangers. Um, she's talking to a woman named Nadia. So, Frances goes... Nadia, I want this one moment. It's what I want in a relationship, which might explain why I'm single now. Ha ha. It's hard to. It's like that thing where you're with someone and you love them 
and they know it. And they love you and you know it. But it's a party. And you're both talking to each other or both talking to other people and laughing and shining. And you look across the room and you catch each other's eye, but not because you are possessive or that it's precisely sexual, but because that is your person in this life. And it's funny and sad, but only because this life will end. And it's a secret world that no one else knows about that exists right there in public, unnoticed, sort of like how they say other dimensions exist all around us, but we don't have the ability to perceive them. That's what I want out of a relationship or just life, I guess. Love. Blah, I sound stoned. I'm not stoned. Thanks for dinner. Bye. Nadia. Oh, bye. <laughs> Just like Ra- that. <laughs> Rachel, I do want to read this part. Rachel, where the fuck are you going? Okay. <laughs> why, why, where the fuck first, are you going? First off, bravo. Thank you for doing that. I, I, I think this is fun. Prepared. I, I want to do more of this. But I want to end on that Rachel line because I think like that question reminds me of Hamlet. Um, sorry, know, listeners. Right? Is um, It's just like the central question of the whole movie, right? Um, yeah. And I think, again, what I really love about this dialogue here, and then I want to let you speak to the screenwriting as well, is I think in this movie, Frances Ha talks so much, but this is like the only real thing that I heard her say, like in the movie. That's so true. So, just any thoughts about the dialogue you just read? I don't know. It's so good. I remember I watched this for the first time and I was like, oh, okay. Frances is annoying. Um, she's just like me for real. She doesn't know what she's talking about ever, but, but it, I think they, this scene in specific completely wraps up what her belief is and I think when they were writing this they decided that she can't just be running around willy-nilly which she does but they decided that she needed to have a belief but it's not this isn't something that you can just throw in at the beginning to like set the mood for the whole story because you know that she's on this mission and you know that she's trying to just get through life but you don't know what her real like purposes um, until you hear this. And this is like a good halfway through the film. And then of course, in the end, like this comes true and, and she finds this and she has this, but it's not with like a man or a romantic partner. It's with her best friend. And I think that this is just so the whole script is so beautifully written to portray the importance of like a soulmate and how Francis does have her soulmate and it is her best friend, but you know, it's not, I don't know. It's, it's all really well wrapped up right here, but yes, she says so much and so little at the same time. <laughs> um, and then after this, I love, she goes to, to Paris and sees Puss in Boots in theater, which is pretty, <laughs> pretty dope. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah. Um, I think it's a great breakdown there, Siobhan, and I appreciate you reading the script. I thought that was fun. Yeah. Right. We've got to do this again. We got to brush up on our acting chops. Yeah, we'll, we'll get better as we go, listeners. Give us some feedback <laughs> on, on what you think. So that's the episode of the Trouble Feature Podcast. Again, our double feature we discussed today was Roma and Francis Ha. On next episode, if you want to watch before we talk, we're going to do some Wes Anderson films. Um, the double feature is The Royal Tenenbaums, The Darjeeling Limited, and we're probably going to talk about family. 
And then we'll give Siobhan the floor to talk more about um, Asteroid City and then newest Wes Anderson film. Yes, I'm excited. Read a, watch a Wes Anderson film this week, folks. Yeah, that's your homework. Um, there's your marching orders. So watch movie, talk movie, love movie. That's the Trouble Future Podcast. We appreciate you. Until next time. All right. Thank you. Do I say end scene? End scene. Cut. Thank you.